I have Paul Bloom back. Paul, good to hear you. Good to be back. I have a couple of messes to clean up, or at least one mess to clean up from the last round where we, um, I, I haven't gone back to listen to exactly what we said, but I got the sense that we disparaged Pee Wee Herman somehow, or at least uh, minimized <laughs> that, his... That was the least of my intentions. Right, yeah. I, I... Nothing mean-spirited, but we had we um, diminished his stature or assumed that, that he was invisible or you know had, had disappeared into obscurity in some way because we haven't been paying attention to his career. But someone pointed out, and uh, I quickly confirmed, that the man is is selling out very large auditoriums with his latest act. I mean, he's he's has quite a career. He's out there making a, a fair amount of noise. So it seems we were wrong about Paul Rubens. Well, good to know. Good yeah. to know. And as as I was walking to the studio ten minutes ago, I saw uh, that Al Franken is coming to uh, to New Haven. So you know, I think he had uh, somewhat of a blow to his reputation. But maybe uh, maybe redemption is more common than than we had expected. Maybe cancellation is rarely permanent. That's good to know. Anyway, so uh, no hard feelings, Paul Rubens. Absolutely, absolutely yeah. no hard feelings towards Paul Rubens. Yeah. And the other thing, I, this is the other thing that that I just had in my mind to mention, based on the last conversation. We we started by talking about Kobe's death and you know the death of everyone else involved in that that helicopter crash and. Because we recorded our last conversation the day after that happened, and I didn't know this at the time, but finding out about it is it's an interesting ethical question. So we we didn't touch on this. I believe it is in fact true that TMZ, the kind of paparazzi-inspired website, announced Kobe's death before the family even knew about it. That was the huh. the way the information came out, and. I'm wondering just what you think about this, the ethics of that. I mean, the, the interesting thing from my point of view is, given that I've taken such a strong position against the advertising model and what that has done to digital media, th- this seems to me to be another symptom of it. I mean, the, the race to publish is really directly incentivized by the kind of winner-take-all effects of clickbait journalism. And with different incentives, that there wouldn't be the same kind of sense of time pressure to publish. I was just wondering what you thought about that. And because many people think, well, why does it matter? You know, if you, the tragedy is, you know, you've lost your husband, your, your father, this is a 20 megaton catastrophe. However you look at it, does it really matter that you heard about it on Twitter because TMZ tweeted it and not, you know, through some sober channel? But it seems to me to matter a lot. I'm wondering what you as a psychologist. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I don't have any special expertise on this as a psychologist, just sort of common sense and, and decency. If somebody's, you know, father, daughter, you know, wife, whatever dies, you want to be told in a sober, controlled circumstance. You don't want to, you know, find it as a hashtag. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I think, you know, for the most part, news sources are often particularly well behaved in this way, but some of them aren't. And and there is a sort of Darwinian battle for clicks and for attention. And so, so some don't play by the rules. And, you know, I, I, I think in some way there's, there's a question of what should be legally allowed, which I actually think a lot. Mm, but there's yeah. also the question of what's sort of morally atrocious. And something could be, you know, you wouldn't want the law to punish them, but you want to also say that's kind of despicable. Yeah. No, it, it really is hard to imagine the 
the editorial call here when you when you have every reason to believe that you know this information is minutes old and that the family probably doesn't know anything about it and you're racing to publish it's it's just something something has gotten away from you there and again it's the the incentives at your back no doubt but as a symptom of of our uh, digital ecosystem at the moment and definitely at the moment i mean we're both old enough to remember when there were newspapers and you know rushing to get it out would be rushing to get it out the next day yeah and and yeah. for the last long while it's been a matter of minutes or seconds right and uh, and so so that that kind of changes everything okay so now we're talking in the immediate aftermath of the trump impeachment acquittal and the um the high drama of Nancy Pelosi tearing up the State of the Union address and Mitt Romney breaking from the herd and voting um, to impeach. What do you think about all of this? Do you have a, a hot take on, on the politics I, of this? I, I have observations everyone else has, which is, if anything, Trump is becoming more and more unhinged, more and more confident in his abilities to, um, to do whatever he pleases. And, uh, and so, you know, I think things are going to get worse and worse and worse until, you know, I hope with the next election they get better. And it is true that, that the Democrats are responding in kind. And people have said, oh, this doesn't work. You know, Trump makes fun of your appearance. You make fun of Trump's appearance. You're just descending to his level. But the thing is, the history of, of battling Trump is nothing works. The high yeah. road doesn't work. The low road doesn't work. That's what is so strange about him and, and, and this moment politically, because it Nothing works, and and I'm trying to understand why this is the case. I mean, it almost seems like a a supernatural phenomenon, right? Because I I can't map it on to any normal experience. It's just like the the obelisk in 2001, <laughs> right? I mean, it's an it's, it's it's the superficial version of that. That was like a infinite profundity somehow that never had to be explained, right? This is just the singularity that at the heart of the cosmos. And Trump is like the inverse of all of that. So it's like there's no depth. It's all surface. And yet the surface is engineered in a way so as to reflect the worst in everyone. This is what's so bizarre about Trump and the response to him. I mean, it's, it's, he has a capacity to tarnish the reputation of everyone who comes into his orbit, right? And, and this is, again, whether it's a supporter or a critic. And I mean, for supporters, it's, this is very obvious. I mean, the effect is astonishing. You have serious people with real reputations. I mean, see, politicians and soldiers and business people who have lifetimes of real accomplishment, who achieve levels of personal hypocrisy and political cowardice in propping him up and in covering for his lies and in pretending not to notice his lies, in just pretending that he's normal, that I mean we've never seen before. But then the flip side of it is that all of his critics are also diminished by how they respond to this. And, you know, the case with Pelosi, I think, is an example of this. I mean, many people are obviously celebrating what she did, but I think it does also diminish her, right? I mean, she's just, she is left behaving in a way that a congressperson shouldn't behave, right? And, and she's yeah. demeaning the office of the presidency because of its current occupant. And there's just something so strange about this. This uh, term of disparagement that 
Trump supporters use Trump derangement syndrome. You know, everyone has TDS. Mm -hmm. There's something to that because he he is a kind of super stimulus, right? I mean, the re the reaction to him is is exaggerated because it's out of proportion to his qualities as a person. It's out of proportion to the bad things he's done and the bad things he aspires to do because he's not actually evil, right? I mean, he's not, or he's not, he's not as scary as he might be. And yet somehow he gets an even bigger reaction than someone would if they were just truly scary, right? So it's almost like his smallness as a person is invoking a bigger reaction than you would ordinarily feel. And I, and I feel it myself. I, mean, I feel it personally. I mean, I've said this. I find him more despicable than I found Osama bin Laden, right? And that's, yeah. that's strange. This is psychologically true because with Osama bin Laden, it's just obvious to me that he could have been a mensch in some sense, right? I mean, he's, he's, he's making serious sacrifices for ideas that he deeply believes in. He's committed to a cause greater than himself. I don't doubt that he had real ethical connections to the people in his life that he cared about. I mean, he was a real person, right? And, and in some ways, he was a kind of a moral hero in a very bad game, right? And so therefore, he's kind of prototypically evil when viewed from my game. But he's a, a person of actual substance. He's just committed to the wrong ends, whereas Trump is the negation of all of those things. And yet he's president of the United States. And, that's, and that, the perversity of that juxtaposition is just fucking crazy making. And that's how you get this outsized reaction, or at least that's my interpretation of it. So there's some people, I, I agree with all of that, but there's some people who have made contact with Trump and haven't been degraded. It's a very small list. I'm yeah, thinking yeah, who, of, who's on that list? Well, there, there's quite a bit of conservative writers who, who, when Trump came into power, they sort of said, this guy clashes with all of our principles. Right, and the, even the never Trumpers. Kind of, yeah. The never Trumpers, like uh, Jonah Goldberg, for instance. David Frum. Yeah. yeah. And, and they said, even though this is going to get me kicked off Fox News, I'm going to lose some revenue, I'm going to lose some fans, I'm going to sort of stand up for what I believe. And, you know, they, pay, they paid a sort of financial and, and sort of professional price for it. And, and now we have, you know, Mitt Romney. And my feelings about Mitt Romney have always been complicated. I don't think he's, a, he's quite the sort of choir boy as people like to think of him as when he was running for president, he was, he was pretty rough and tumble. But I have nothing but admiration for him standing up against Trump this time. So what, what yeah. do, you think? do you think? Do you think, would you put Romney as, as an exception? Yeah, well, I mean, first I should apologize for all the bad things I've said about Romney in the past, because I, I went fairly hard against Romney and his Mormonism when he was, when he was the candidate in 2012. And I'm sure at least once or twice mentioned that he, he must be wearing magic underpants and, and that we did not need a, a president who believed what he believed. And, and yeah, my, my concerns about his, his religious beliefs and, you know, the, kind of the, the inflexibility of mind that you would imagine he would have given those beliefs, I view those as valid concerns in any president. And it is a, it's painfully ironic to me that in all of my hopes that Trump would be impeached, the person waiting to assume the presidency is a religious dogmatist of the first order, Mike Pence, who in, yep. in another context would trip all of the switches in me that would worry about theocracy in, in the U.S. So I went after Romney for his religiosity in the past, and 
I've noticed the same things about him that, that everyone has noticed, that he was clearly a political opportunist in many ways, and, and there was something truly humiliating about his seeking to be secretary of mm -hmm. state under Trump after all that had gone down between him and Trump. I mean, that was almost a, a Shakespearean level of cravenness at the time or, you know, attachment to political power. Still, still, you know, if you want the full Shakespeare, go for Ted Cruz. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Ted Cruz, yes. <laughs> you know, that was, Ted, Ted that Cruz was brutal, yes. Personal deep humiliation by Trump, and then he has to go back and beg him for various things and champion him. Well, well, and it says something about yeah. how difficult politics is. Well, also, worse still, it, it all, it was finally commemorated in the shot of him working the phone banks for Trump. I don't know if you saw that photograph. Oh, I, I have it, seen that, yeah. yeah. So it's just awful, right? I mean, just... Where does one go to get a spine in the game of but now, politics? But now Romney, but, going yeah, back, does, yeah, did, so, did redeem himself to some extent. Yeah, that was all by way of my saying that, yeah, in this moment, though it's, it's hard to imagine that it's a political price that matters, it is it's very real for him. I mean, he's, he's someone now who's, who's being vilified by his colleagues and, and his political tribe, and probably worse. I mean, he probably has the, the, the maniacs in Trump's base sending him death threats, and yep. you know, some of which are credible. And I mean, it's just the people who go against Trump have stories to tell about what that's like when the mob turns on you. So I, yeah, I just I have nothing but respect for how he's comporting himself in, in this moment. And, and certainly don't underestimate that it's in, in his world a, a real sacrifice. So, so let me switch gears for us and yep. say something nice about Trump. Oh. And it's sincerely nice how, about Trump. How surprising. Trump. <laughs> yes. And it's something from Tyler Cowen. So Cowen is one of my favorite writers and thinkers. And he mm -hmm. has a, a, little, a little piece, I think, in uh, Bloomberg News or something, where he, he talks about the best orators of the last decade. And he lists two of them. Discuss. He thinks Barack Obama's a third, maybe a distant third. One is Greta Thunberg, who right. is an extremely unusual, very powerful speaker. This unusual prosody and great moral seriousness, the, the, the sort of juxtaposition between her being seemingly like sort of a, a, a young woman and talking with such seriousness and gravity. But, but Thunberg's second, Trump is first. And, yeah, well, and this, Trump uh, is an extraordinary orator. Well, <laughs> extraordinary in scare quotes. But yeah, I mean, so... I don't mean, to, obviously, I don't mean as a sort of like, oh, I, I, in, I don't mean as a, moral, as a moral good. I mean in terms of skill. No, well, what, what can be ascribed to skill... I still stand by my, my evil Chauncey Gardner interpretation here. I, I think there's, there's far less method to his madness than, than actual madness that just happens to work in this context for whatever reason. But, and I, I certainly share your respect for Tyler Cowen, but I, I don't agree here. I think he's, there's no advantage to him, or at least I don't see the advantage in him being incoherent. For him to contradict himself over the course of five minutes is not fourth-level chess. It's just a mistake, right? And, and it's just the fact that he pays no price for that mistake, whereas you and I would pay a very high price in, mm -hmm. in, the, in the context of a conversation like this. He's managed to select an audience that doesn't care about contradictions, right? They don't, they're not going to hold him to the letter of any utterance because they don't. I mean, why they don't, I, it's still a mystery to me. I, I don't actually have a... I don't think I have an adequate theory of mind for the, the people, and there are you know, tens of millions of them, who do not care when he says A in direct contradiction to B 
or yeah. vice versa over the course of you know two minutes, and and it, it may be on a topic that they profess to care about, and yet they don't care that you know you you can't actually follow both of those paths through his mind or any apparent reality. A while ago, the philosopher Harry Frankfurt, you know, used yeah. the term bullshit as a technical term. Yeah. And he says, you know, you know, there's people who tell the truth, then there's people who lie. But then there's bullshitters who are simply indifferent to the truth. And, and that, that was coined before Trump, you know, ascended. But, but it, works, it works well for him. I think you're, you're holding Trump to sort of a, a standard that his audience doesn't. He's, a, he's seen yeah, as an entertainer, yeah. a no showman. Doubt. I mean, so let me just say, so just to, to give a sense of what I'm talking about, Cowan points out his speech is highly repetitive, slow and ponderous. I, I have a soft spot for slow and ponderous because I, I am that. But highly repetitive. Well, that, like a high, so when I watch him being highly mm -hmm. repetitive, I see neurological injury manifest, right? I see someone who is in a visibly, audibly in a holding pattern because they can't get to the next thought, right? And, and worse, what I, what I see with him, and I've commented on this before, I see with him to a unique degree, I mean, I've never seen it this bad in any other person. I see him being prompted by and anchored to accidents in his utterances mm -hmm. that he then is committed to shoring up. And the, I mean, the way I tried to illustrate this in the past, and it's still, I, don't, I can't think of another way, but it, it's almost like he's speaking in verse, but he's, you know, it's, this is extemporaneous. And he doesn't know what, how he's going to complete the rhyme, but he's, he's held to it. So he'll just say something like, there was once a man from Spokane, right? Mm -hmm. And he doesn't know where he's going after this, right? But he's got Spokane. He landed on Spokane. And then he has to get to something that rhymes there. From immigrants, we get too much cocaine. Yeah, yeah. And he'll land on that. And that is the message, right? And it's born of a process, back to Frankfurt here, he's just bullshitting to remind people of you know, th this brilliant distinction that Frankfurt made between a bullshitter and a liar. A liar is someone who is fully aware of the logical expectations of his audience. He's fully aware of what reality is and the departures he's introducing from it in his speech. And he's having to fit the jigsaw puzzle pieces in where they fit in real time. Right? So he knows that you're expecting coherence he knows what you know about the world, and he's engineering his lies so as to go undetected. A bullshitter is just talking. He's not wasting any of the cognitive overhead to track what reality is or what your expectations are of you know, his fit to it. And he's just creating a mood with the way he speaks and bloviating and confabulating. And that's what Trump is doing to a degree that is truly unsurpassed. And in any other walk of life, he would immediately be recognized as a con man and a fraud and a bullshitter and someone who can't be trusted and certainly someone who can't be given significant responsibility. And yet it works in this country at this time in the presidency. So yes, it's true that he's incredibly effective for the people he's apparently effective for, but I do not understand it. I think there's some sort of genius behind it. I don't think he himself is a genius, but I think Everything you're saying, there is the feeling that you, he has no idea what he's going to say next. He could drift everywhere. He could find himself, get some laughter from the crowd and seize on that. And it's so different from the standard polished presentations one gets from, from a typical politician. I mean, 
to some extent, I've, I've listened to some of Jordan Peterson, and Jordan Peterson is a thousand times more articulate. Yeah. And, and smoother and clearer. Well, but well, you, get I, somewhat of, you get somewhat of the same hilarious. feeling. It's hilarious you said that because I've actually said the same point about talking in verse and completing the rhyme. I've said about Jordan, too, in, in my moments of the greatest opposition with him, that there, there is a quality where he's not doing the reality testing that I would want him to do. It just sounds good, what he's saying. And if you, but if you actually bring him up short and say, okay, what do you actually mean? by, you know, God or faith or whatever it is in the sentence, then it goes into the ditch. So there is that, just kind of being carried away by the sound of your own voice. But with Trump, it is so bereft of content, right? It's it's at the level of a fourth grader, and it's it's repetitive at the level of a fourth grader. I mean, no no fourth grader repeats himself as much as Trump does. But But you can hear the the Trump derangement syndrome, and this is back to my point. It's like I, I stand by everything that I'm saying about Trump now, but the fact that I'm saying it, the fact that it's taking up this much of our conversation, is even for the people who will agree with me, certainly many of them think, you know, this guy is living rent-free in your brain, and this is bad for you, and it's bad for us, and it's bad for conversation, and, it's, and there's, there's something true about that. I mean, I think we have to, you know, I don't know how we respond to that fact politically over the next nine months, but there is something, you know, I really have had to pick my moments with Trump and just ignore him for yeah. many podcasts running because it's boring to criticize him ultimately. But I'll add, I'll add one thing to my blast of Trump love, mm-hmm. and we can leave it alone, yes. which is, you know, other presidents have, have phrases that they're known for, you know, the soft bigotry of low expectations or a lot of Kennedy's lines, and they were typically written by professionals. But somehow I think these phrases we're going to remember, like fake news, drain the swamp, make America great again, make Mexico pay for it. The, the things which you do it sort of, which people know by heart and he could start them and the audience will finish them. These seem to be coming from Trump's mind. And it is, it is, there's so little to respect about him, but he has some abilities, some really extraordinary abilities. Well, he has a, I mean, one ability is, again, this is a, whether you call this an ability or a, a symptom, that's debatable. But he is utterly shameless, right? He's scandal-proof within his own mind. He just cannot be derailed by being shown to be at odds with himself or with reality. Or, and that, again, it's one of these crazy-making things that he's just, he can lie 16,000 times and never pay a penalty for it. Well, you're talking substance, and, and I agree with that. But I'm thinking about style. And, and think about the analogy. I was listening to a podcast by Jordan Peterson, which I don't do, but I just wanted to listen to what he sounds like, what his book talk is. And there's something about it where you don't want to shut it off. You, you have no idea where it's going. And Peterson well, does something which Trump doesn't, which he displays genuine curiosity and interest and energy, a range of emotions you don't normally hear in this kind of talk. And there's something about it. He's a very good speaker, but there's a kind of free associative meandering. Yes somewhat confabulatory thing going on in that there's not a rigorously honest reality testing. And again, I, you know, I, I like Jordan a lot. So it's, you know, this is something I've said to his face and on stage. And so it's, you know, this is not me saying anything behind his back that I haven't actually said to him both in private and in public. And it's just on some level, it's a different, I mean, he has an account for why this is a feature, not a bug. You know, he thinks that, you know, my slavish attachment to reality testing and logic is 
something that is a symptom of my own, you know, rigidity and lack of awareness of certain truths that can be, you know, bivalenced or, you know, however, I'm not just making up words that, that and putting them in his mouth, but he's more comfortable with paradox and a mythopoetic take on reality th than I am, certainly. But none of that is, I mean, it would be amazing to know that behind closed doors, Trump is very different. Everything I've said about Trump, and this is amazing, this has gone on much longer than I anticipated, but more Trump derangement syndrome. Yeah, no, it, it, it's I, I've let me comp to it, but I, I think it's I would add that I think it's warranted. Everything I've said about Trump and my you know evil Chauncey Gardner thesis mm -hmm. is readily disconfirmable. I mean, it could be disconfirmable in a matter of fifteen seconds. I mean, he would just have to say something that I would imagine he's incapable of saying if he just for a paragraph was tenfold more articulate than I've ever seen him be. And said, this is the way I talk with my friends behind closed doors, but, you know, this is the way I talk on stage. And then show me both versions. I would realize he actually is a genius who has, has calculated his effect on his audience. You know, then I'd be prepared to believe anything. He could be reading the meditations of Marcus Aurelius behind closed <laughs> doors and talking for hours about them in, in, insightfully. But I know exactly what he's doing behind closed doors, or at least I think I do, right? He's just watching Fox and Friends and shrieking at people. And, you know, the reports of what he's like behind closed doors certainly substantiate yep. that. Anyway, okay, we're, we're going to pivot to something here which is really um, adjacent to this topic and related to, actually, so you, you, it was synchronous that you, you mentioned Harry Frankfurt because he has also written about inequality and wealth inequality is something that is, has been very much on my mind and it is really a, a pressing issue in our politics now, and, and arguably the most pressing issue on the Democratic side. I don't know what you think of the prospects of our nominating someone like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren in the general election, but the concern about wealth inequality would be the reason why that would happen. Yeah. I, I you know, putting aside the specifics of, of who's going to be next president, I think people think in a very confused way about inequality. I think for the most part, people think they are very concerned about wealth inequality, but they aren't really. And, and this actually comes from Frankfurt, who wrote a book on a topic. So Frankfurt, you know, it says, this isn't exactly his example. This is the idea. Jeff Bezos, compare, compare Jeff Bezos to your average person with $10 million. They have a hugely unequal amount of wealth, way more than, than you know, your average extremely poor person and rich person. They have an extraordinarily by, by many magnitudes different in wealth. But nobody worries about that. Nobody said, oh my God, such inequality. Right. <laughs> Except for the person with $10 million. Yes, this person with $10 million. He feels might, the sting feel of it. proximity to Bezos. Yes, yes this, is, this is true. Yeah. But in general, it's not the biggest problem in the world. So I think, and this is Frankfurt's argument, and, and I've developed this in both technical papers and sort of casual papers. When people say they're worried about inequality, they're typically worried about one of two other things, and a few other possibilities. One is poverty. You know, poverty is terrible. And, and we tend to worry about poverty, justifiably so. We want to, you know, a world in which everybody was, you know, well off, can afford food and health care and recreation, would be a wonderful world. And if we were in that world, and some people made 10 times as much or 100 times as much, I think we would worry a lot less. So there's poverty. And then the second factor is unfairness. 
Mm. So there's a lot of laboratory experiments finding that even young kids get very upset at unequal divisions. But these are always cases where the unequal divisions are arbitrary. If you switch it a bit, so let's say one person works harder than another and then makes more money, the kids are happy with the unequal divisions and they get an annoyed when the divisions are equal. And the same thing for, for adults. For, regardless of the society, people actually want unequal societies. If you offer them total equality, they'll reject it. They want unequal societies so long as the, unequal, the inequality is calibrated to natural gifts or effort or, or some sort of thing that doesn't seem unfair. Not many people are that upset that J.K. Rowling is so rich. They're, they're, they're right. quite upset at, at all sorts of other inequalities, but, they, but for the most part, people say, yeah, she, she deserves it. She does, did wonderful things. Well, first of all, let's start with the political side of it, which is it seems to me that the messaging around this as a problem, given what you just said, is completely wrong. You've got people like Sanders and Warren going after billionaires as though they're even more interested in getting rid of billionaires than they are getting rid of poverty, right? Like the problem is yeah. that some people have risen so high, right? So that seems, given what you said, quite wrong. And it's especially wrong given what may be true of the, the underlying economics. I mean, just like we should want a system that maximizes the likelihood that we will produce wealth as a species. Yeah. And whatever that system is, the, like the right answer to how to organize an economy is one that maximizes creativity and incentivizes everything you want to incentivize and, and disincentivizes everything you want to disincentivize and just unleashes human creativity in the right direction rather than in perverse yeah. directions. And under such a system, I mean, there, there's certainly the expectation that all boats will rise with this tide. So you'll, you'll mitigate poverty to whatever degree that's possible, or the poorest people will be getting richer and richer, but they'll still be the poorest in that system. There will still be inequality and there'll still be people who are outliers in either direction. And yet, one problem here is that this maps on rather badly to people's comparative algorithm in how yeah. they assess their own well-being. I mean, the fact that you have people who are that feel poor, they might have $10 million, but they feel poor because their college buddies have $20 million, right? I don't know how you think about that as a psychologist, but that seems like a durable feature of our psychology. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a Russian fable of these two peasants who are dirt, dirt poor. Ivan and Boris, and Boris has a sickly old goat. And then a genie comes to Ivan and says, I can give you anything you want. And, and Ivan says, I want you killed Boris goat, you know, and, and that would make them equal. Mm. And, and the, the comparative nature of worrying what the other person has and, and not thinking in absolute terms of how, whether I want to be, be safe and well-fed and prosper, but really how am I doing relative to everybody else? is something that's part of our psychologies. But again, I think we could stomach it better if we think it's fair. If we think there's a fair system and people, if I see somebody are getting paid more than me and they're more talented and they work harder, I might feel some resentment, but still. But what's fair about that though? I mean, this comes back to the free will discussion we had last time. When you look at someone who's endowed with all kinds of gifts that uh, you may not be endowed with, right? But, you know, based on good genes and the effort born of yet other good genes that yeah. allow for effort and having opportunities that um, even if you had them, you 
couldn't have availed yourself of them, right? I mean, so it's like, you know, I had the opportunity to go to Juilliard and study violin. Of course I did. I just have no musical ability, right? So the doors were closed to me. What good was that opportunity? How is that fair in any deep sense? I mean, J.K. Rowling, yes, she's sitting in a Starbucks mm-hmm. writing her novel, and she's putting a fair amount of effort into it, no doubt. But on some level, she's just typing. And behind the typing is a creative talent that most people don't have. Yeah. And if you say, well, it's not only she has more talent, she's works harder than anybody else. You could then come back and say, yeah, but why is it she has the, the, the energy and the grit yeah. to work harder than anybody else? She's I got gumption. She's got gumption. Yeah. I, I wish I had some gumption. <laughs> yes. yeah. Whose but, goat do I kill to get some gumption? That's, that's right. <laughs> uh, you know, Boris has more gumption from me than me. Please take it. Look, I agree with your analysis ultimately, the sort of deterministic story. But there's a common sense notion of fair and credit where, you know, if you and I have a race and you run faster than me and you win the gold medal, well, that's fair. And I could later rage at the heavens for giving me bad running genes or something. But for the most part, we have intuitions of what's fair involving effort and involving ability and intuitions of what's not fair. You know, if, if, if you have an advantage because the color of your skin or something, people say that's not fair. Maybe it's not fair if you have an advantage because your parents were richer. But, but we do naturally segment things into fair and unfair, though in some sense in the deterministic world, it's not clear what to make of it. And we are comfortable, for the mm. most part, with inequalities that are, do, that are seen as fair. Now, it gets more complicated. We started talking about wealth, and this is true for wealth. I think a lot of people would think that in some cases we should be equal regardless of our abilities. Everybody, you know, rich people shouldn't get to vote more than poor people. Perhaps they shouldn't get access to better health care. Mm. And that's where you get a lot of arguments about. But for wealth, I think equality is not something we desire and that we would actually really want. Yeah, I think there's something confusing about this notion of fairness. I mean, we want games to be fair in that we want the rules to be applied fairly. We want to know what the rules are in advance, and we don't want them changed on us capriciously. So we don't Mm -hmm. want corruption. Take something like the Olympics. We have a performance-based game Mm -hmm. that really should just be tracking what it claims to be tracking in each event, right? So if the goal is to find out who the fastest sprinter on earth is, well, then just put the 10 fastest sprinters or whatever it is, the eight fastest sprinters on the track at any given time, and let's see who wins, right? And then we'll know. And that's how the 100-meter dash should be run. And if we found out that, you know, some people were getting their slots because they had made a big donation to the Olympic Committee, just imagine what that race would look like, right? So the rich person who would be humiliated by how badly they were performing in any of these events, I mean, that's what's so good about athletics. You can't game the system in the ordinary ways, right? It's it's actually a, a true meritocracy. There's no illusion about, you know, who's faster. But in some sense, that's what we want. And we want that in the wealth space as well, in the sense that the people who are reaping these advantages from what they're managing to sell to all of us, we want there to be a clear kind of causal connection between the amount of value they're creating and the rewards they're getting. There's a perverse effect here where once you push it into true unambiguous goods like curing cancer, then the, somehow things flip and we feel like someone shouldn't be getting too rich off of that, right? That really should be done for its own sake. If you told me that someone 
made a billion dollars because they came up with a new social networking app, that's one thing. But if they cured cancer and they made a billion, well, maybe they should have made less and, and more of that money should have gone into giving out free cancer drugs. There's actually a psychological literature on that phenomenon you're describing. It's called tainted altruism. Mm. And it's, it's, a, it's a paradoxical and irrational finding. But here's what you do. You, you put a lot of energy into helping people and you really improve their lives. But while you're doing it, you enjoy it and make money off of it. I just sit on my ass and do nothing. When we tell people about these situations, they disapprove of you more than they disapprove of me. <laughs> Pe people want good acts to come yeah. with some degree of suffering and sacrifice, and they get really upset. It, it's, it's an interesting question why this is so. But they tend to distrust people, for instance, who make money off of being kind and being good. So much so that, you're, again, you're better off doing nothing. Yeah, this, there's a perverse outcome here, which Dan Pallotta has that's right, talked that's about right. a lot. He's, he's given a TED Talk on this topic where we refuse to compensate people in the nonprofit space the way we do in normal business space because we think that having too much overhead for a nonprofit and anyone making a lot of money at a nonprofit, there's something unseemly about that. And for that reason, nonprofits don't competitively attract the same kind of talent. Yeah. If you're someone who could have worked anywhere and you're deciding to work at a nonprofit, you are almost by definition making a serious financial sacrifice. And we as a culture have decided you should be making a sacrifice rather than truly incentivizing you to use your talents to help people so that you can do it without apparent sacrifice. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And so a lot of our economic notions of what's fair and what's unfair, are there is some irrationality in it. I also think there's some other forces at work. You mentioned sort of billionaire bashing. And, you know, to some extent, some of the billionaires are badly behaved and deserve to be bashed. But I think there's often an irrational view here, which is that if someone is successful, it is at the expense of somebody else. Right. And in some systems, that really is true. Some systems are, are honest to God, zero sum. Your, your victory is my defeat. But, you know, J.K. Rowling, and selling her books and making all the money at the same time makes, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, nine-year-old kids really, really happy. Yeah. Although I have to give uh, a moment of praise to um, the Harry Potter Enterprise. Have you, have you ever been to one of these amusement parks at the Harry Potter World, wherever they happen to be? With I have your never, kids? no. It is the most brilliant merchandising you have ever seen. I mean, it's, it's you'd think that it's on some level just the same as anything else, like, you know, Star Wars merchandising, or like they've created toys and other objects that people want to buy associated with the, the intellectual property. But that's not what's going on. If you go to one of these Harry Potter amusement parks, it truly is. I mean, there's a few rides, but basically it is just a shopping experience, but it does yeah. not feel like a shopping experience. It's totally integrated with the world of Harry Potter. Right. So you're going to the, you know, the candy store on Diagon Alley or whatever, you know, I've forgotten the details, but like you're moving through the world she's created. But every single step in that world is another opportunity to shop. Right. Yeah. And the shopping is, again, it's not an afterthought. It's it is the most brilliant mercenary marriage of someone's, you know, real creativity with with a business opportunity I've ever seen. The most desirable ride or moment in the whole thing is to wait in line for two hours for the opportunity to buy a wand, right? So there's like a 10-minute ah. performance, but before you get into the store that allows you to spend something like, you know, 60 or you know, $70 on a, 
plastic wand. There's a 10 minute, like a little stage play yeah. where, you know, the wand master singles, you know, two children out from the crowd and takes them through the finding the right wand, you know, for that child. And then, you know, everyone spills out into the gift shop, given the opportunity to buy a wand. And it's just, it is amazing. And yet it's a testament to framing effects because it actually doesn't feel like what it is, which is you're just being beaten over the head with kind of a shopping imperative. You, you sound like you're speaking from experience. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I've, I've, I've been twice, and, uh, uh, and the credit card noticed. But, but just, to, just to take the bad taste out of our mouths from this, this sort of capitalist gone mad story, I, I have a sort of typical story. I, I, my, my two sons were young. At midnight, we were at the Barnes & Noble waiting in line yeah. for my two kids. One was a big, big reader, one less so, getting to be a reader, and to buy the books at midnight. And yeah. these are big books. These are these big, heavy, you know, and... It is some sort of genius, whether or not she could get credit for her genius or not, but, but some sort of genius to be able to do this, to, to tell these stories that so perfectly entrance young kids. And, you know, when we talk about doing things that have value or not, this is something beyond the fact that it's, you know, it makes an enormous amount of money. It is such a good thing yeah. to be able to do that. Oh, yeah. No, no. She's brought a lot of joy to the world, no question. And, um, we want a system where people get rewarded for doing that in some relation, you know, linear or otherwise, with the amount of value they've created. But the stark facts are quite stark when you notice that I think it's down now to the richest eight people on earth. It might actually be down to like five people have more of the world's resources than the bottom, you know, nearly 4 billion people, yeah. right? And we will get to the point where there is a, a first trillionaire. I mean, people don't have a good intuitive grasp of the numbers here. I mean, the difference between a million and a billion and a billion and a trillion. People are you know, famously bad at visualizing this. It's easier with respect to time, I think. So if you say to someone, well, if I gave you a dollar every second, in two weeks, you'd have a million dollars, right? So you mm -hmm. have a sense of, you have an intuitive sense of two weeks. If I give you a dollar every second in 32 years, you'd have a billion dollars, right? <laughs> I mean, that's a, so 32 yeah. years is a thousand fold longer than two weeks. Well, okay, 32 years is a good chunk of your life. Well, if I gave you a dollar every second, it would take 32,000 years. For you to get a trillion dollars, right? And, you know, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, and I mean, there are people who are on their way to, you know, they have a tenth of a trillion dollars. I mean, it is a level of, of wealth acquisition that is really difficult to wrap your, your mind around. And when you juxtapose that with the real need in the world, it's easy to see how people get a zero-sum feeling about, you know, all the good things that could be done with that money if we could just claw it back the way Sanders yeah. and Warren want to. There's also a cool psychological question. I was arguing with some students and colleagues yesterday about happiness. So there used to be this old line about happiness where your happiness goes up as you make more and more money, but it stops about $100,000. Yes, and, I've debunked and, that. I mean, you, you need only read the abstract of the paper in which Danny Kahneman and uh, his co-author floated that thesis to know that that was only half the story, but... Right. So it's half... So this is for day-to-day -day pleasure. Yeah. And in fact, day-to-day -day pleasure, if you ask you know, how much fun are you having, that does kind of top out. 
But when you ask people how satisfied with your life they are, yeah. it keeps on going up. The slope you know, gets smaller, of course, because you kind of run into a ceiling effect. And this paper came out, I think, like three months ago, looking at people with a million dollars, $10 million, $100 million. And apparently it keeps going up. Yeah. You know, if somebody with $100 million is a little bit more satisfied with life than $10 million. But what came up in our in discussion is there may be a point at, at, I don't know, a billion, where things start to go a bit awry, where you become so distant from normal human contact. And this connects to this Tim Ferriss thing I want to ask you about. But, and all of a sudden, you might end up in serious trouble. I think I know where you're going with Tim Ferriss. He wrote this blog post on fame, yeah. which was interesting. And so the bridge to that is that there's something that Scott Galloway, who uh, many people will know, he's got a podcast he does with Kara Swisher, The Pivot. He's a uh, professor at um, NYU Business School and quite the contrarian. Actually, he's going to be on the podcast soon, and uh, I'm a fan of his. But he said at one point that what you really want to be is, is rich and anonymous. You don't want to be famous for being yeah. rich. You just want to be rich. You don't want to be recognizable. You just want to be rich. Everybody knows your name. Nobody knows your face. So you get all the benefit of most of the benefit of fame is really the benefit of wealth, or at least it's 80% of what you would want with fame, you, you're going to get with wealth and with none of the downside. So what you're saying is that there could be an effect where you become so wealthy and so famous for being wealthy and so insulated from the real world by necessity, because now you're yeah. surrounded by people who can't think of anything other than you know, how rich you are whenever yeah. they meet you. So there's fame and fame. You know, I used to, I was at the studio at Yale and a couple of weeks before Meryl Streep came in to do something. And if you're Meryl Streep famous, it's just weird walking through people. Yeah. You, you, can't, you can't be by yourself. And there's always some risk if, you know, one out of every thousand people is, is in some way insane or violent. Well, walk through a city street for a while, you'll find them or they'll find you. I'm, I'm kind of a little bit more interested, and this is the question for you, is, is sort of, so Tim Ferriss says he's not Meryl Streep famous, he's not Brad Pitt famous. He's kind of Twitter famous and well-known, has a lot of readership. And so I kind of thought about you. You have a lot of Twitter followers. You tweeted about this podcast, and all of a sudden my mentions are filled up with people who follow you. So do you, so Tim Ferriss says, basically, to be that level of, you know, a million followers, your name's very well-known in a certain group, your face is known that there's something about that that's awful. It doesn't reach Brad Pitt level, but it's still awful at this lower level. Is that, is that your experience? Uh, I should say Tim's a friend, and I think he's probably a little more famous than I am or certainly more recognizable, but I would imagine he's in a similar place in what I consider to be the uncanny valley of fame, which is we're not actually famous famous. It's certainly not rational for me to expect to be recognized wherever I go. Right. So the effect is I don't expect really ever to be recognized. And yet I get recognized with enough frequency that I'm having this experience of being ambushed by the fact that someone knows who I am in a context where I thought I was anonymous. It is kind of an uncanny valley because if you're more famous, if you actually really are a famous person, well, then you just acclimate to this new expectation, which is, yeah, I'm going to walk anywhere and people are going to recognize me. You know, and I know people who are in that situation and, and have seen what it's like for them to be out and about in the world. And I have a very clear sense, as Tim does, and you know, I recommend people read his recent blog post on the topic. I have a very clear sense of what is undesirable about fame, and I certainly don't want any more of it. 
right? I mean, I'm not really consciously avoiding it, although in some ways I am. I mean, I'm, I'm very happy that most of what I put out into the world doesn't have my face on it. Uh-huh. The fame that has very little downside to me would be, as you said, you know, everybody knows your name, but no one knows your face. The example that always comes to mind here is someone like uh, John Le Carre, right? Like, oh, that's a good example. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, so I I've, heard, I've heard I've heard a name, of course, but I can't conjure up a face. Yeah, like I, I don't even think I would necessarily be able to pick him out of a, a lineup. But you know, I'm sure that at any point in his career in the last whatever 35 years that you know the president of the United States would take his call, and so that's a very unique slot to be in. Whereas the Meryl Streep effect, or worse, you know, anyone more famous than that, you don't really live a normal life in any sense once you leave your house. I mean, you're just constantly on display and constantly fielding the consequences of having attracted so much attention from people. And as Tim details in his blog post, I mean, there's just all these behind the scenes downsides yeah. to it where you're hearing from suicidal people and you have stalkers and you're in a collision with a lot of human weirdness that you wouldn't necessarily anticipate even at you know his level, right? I mean, obviously Meryl Streep or someone like that would have stalkers, but you know, the fact that Tim can tell stories about you know people literally getting on airplanes to try to intersect with him, yeah. you know, having gleaned his itinerary from you know one of his tweets. That's right. If I met Meryl Streep, there's nothing I would want from her except just to talk with her. But if I if I met Tim Ferriss, I'd say, man, you know, could you promote my book? Can <laughs> you give me some money? You know, he's known for that kind of thing. And that, that's really awkward. It's also, by the way, I think there's, there's whole different categories. So like Meryl Streep is simply loved and adored. And, and there's, you know, a lot that goes with that. But compare her to a prominent political figure right. who might have people who hate them. Or my favorite example of this, a friend of mine, Matt Polly, wrote a wonderful biography of Bruce Lee. And mm-hmm. when Bruce Lee was at the height of his fame, wherever he would be, big guys would come up and say, I can beat you in a fight. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. and that was his life. He, he had to have a bunch of people around him, and he, and he just basically would point to one of his friends and say, fight him instead. Once you beat him, you could fight me. Right, right. Often he, often he would do this to his friends. <laughs> he'd have no warning that he was about to do it with them. But, but you can see, being known as the, you know, the toughest guy alive makes a public persona awful. Well, being known as a wonderful actor or actress is a little bit better. Yeah, it does matter what you're famous for. There's no question. But I can say, as someone who, you know, at my level of exposure, it's pretty fair to say that as many people hate me as like me, or is it something, I mean, certainly a lot of people hate what I've put out as opposed to like it. I mean, no one ever comes up in person who hates me. The face-to-face yeah. encounters are 100% positive. You know, they can be a little weird occasionally, but it's never a hater coming up. And so that's surprising to me. I mean, that's not obviously not what yeah. happens on social media. So even if you're known for having taken controversial positions, it's not necessarily the experience that you're going to get hate from people in, in real life. Well, that's nice to hear. But, it, you know, I, I, I do see the place you don't want to get to by becoming well-known for whatever it is, whether it's a, you know, a intrinsically happy thing like what J.K. Rowling has put out there or anything else. It's just... The diminishing returns and the negativity is just it's very clear what you don't want. And almost anyone you can think to name in media has gotten too famous for their own good, as far as I can tell. It's just, there's a sweet spot 
there's the Jean Le Carré uh, loophole, but yeah. yeah. Anyway, Tim had many thoughts on that topic. Let's hit one more topic here that we, um, we had a sidebar conversation on. Dan Gilbert had a paper, which seems to explain a lot about our current politics, where you know, as problems begin to get solved, people begin to notice the work that remains to be done and become kind of super sensitized to the, the lingering problems. So it's like as things get better and better, there's this perverse sense that they've never been worse, or at least our politics seem to reflect that. And there's a, there was a paper that seemed to explain that. Yeah, there's some beautiful psychological work. The idea that the phrase concept creep came from Nick Haslam. So he's a psychologist. He took a bunch of examples, bullying, abuse, trauma, addiction, prejudice, a few more, and pointed out that over the last, say, 50 or so years, they've expanded. Bullying used to be for repeated physical abuse. Now it could refer to psychological abuse. It could refer to online abuse. It could refer to neglect. Prejudice used to refer to sort of explicit, overt acts that were motivated against a racial group. And now we have implicit prejudice and unconscious prejudice. And all of these categories have expanded. And there's different things behind it. In some way, Haslam says this has its bad effects, but it has its good effects. It seems to reflect sort of more caring for people. If you're in a brutal world, maybe you'll restrict bullying for really savage things. But as we care more about people and want a more civil world, you may expand the notion of bullying to include other things. In yeah. some extent, it's the process you're talking about, which is this experiment that David Lavari is the first author, where they basically, it's a lovely little experiment. They ask people to identify blue dots and press a button whenever it's a blue dot. And the dots are different shades of colors. And then they make blue dots more and more scarce. And when they do so, people start expanding their notion, make purple dots blue. Mm -hmm. If you say, find the threatening faces, and then you just make them fewer and fewer, people start calling neutral faces threatening. And you could see as something yeah. gets better, you, you then sort of expand the concept to include more and more things. But that result, the threatening face result, really gets close to what we're witnessing as a kind of social problem, where people are triggered by more and more effete transgressions such that, you know, the microaggression is as bad as, you know, anything that has come before it. And it's, we're not even noticing the progress we've made, you know, morally and socially and politically, that we have the free bandwidth to worry about microaggressions when, you know, the macroaggressions are so few and far between. It's really interesting. I forget, was there any uh, recommendation around what to do about it, how to recalibrate? It seems like we should, at minimum, not lose sight of progress, even if we care about that a purple dot does look rather a lot like a blue dot. Do you have a sense of how to move forward there? I don't know. I mean, it, when you look at the real world examples, it gets complicated because in some cases, I think there's a utility to the concept expanding. I think we would agree it's a good thing that the concept of rape has expanded to include the possibility of a husband raping a wife. Well, before our, our you know, our homosexual rape. And that the concept could expand in some ways that are useful. And this is something, by the way, this isn't just sort of a social justice warrior thing versus everybody else. I think the concept of sort of free speech has also expanded similarly, where, you know, there was a time where you, your speech would be free if you weren't arrested for it, if you could give your mm -hmm. speech unmolested by the law. Now people are saying, well, you're, you're hampering my free speech if, you know, if they get dumped on on Twitter, if they get heavily criticized. And to some extent, this expansion may not be a bad idea. It might be linked up to notions of civility and personal freedom. I guess my response to you is, it's not obvious that this is a problem that needs to be solved. 
Right. It's just to not be able to acknowledge progress. And this is something that yes, you know, that's right. Steve that's Pinker right. has been you know hammering away at for now some years. There's something distorting in just one's energy and attention to not see real progress as progress and to be then motivated with a sense of urgency to solve smaller and smaller problems. No, I, I, I think that's totally right. I think so. If I say, look, there's the same amount of bullying in my kid's school as there was 20 years ago, but what's happened is by bullying, now I'm including all sorts of incidents that would never have been called bullying before. Right. I'm losing the data. I'm, I'm losing some observations, and the world just seems to be just as bad, even if it's objectively changed. Yeah. So you're right. The concepts could grow. It's in some way like clinical concepts. It may not be the worst thing in the world if the notion of autism expands to include people who wouldn't otherwise be diagnosed as autism, but it's really important to remember that we're doing that. Otherwise, right. we say there's a crisis. And many more kids have an affliction than had ever before, when in fact might, might happen, and I'm not sure this is what's happening, but what might happen is everything stays exactly the same. We're just broadening the concept. So yeah. you're exactly right. We have to keep that straight. Okay. Well, apologies to all of our listeners who submitted questions on Twitter. We got to none of them, I think. We're, we're going to answer them next time. Yeah. We, we have them listed. We yeah. got them. And next time, I will once again encourage you to reach out to us on Twitter and uh, give us topics and questions. And so if we didn't get to yours, which we didn't, feel free to resubmit. And, and don't, don't follow Sam anymore. He's famous enough. If I could lose some followers here, that would be a, that would be a, a perk. Uh, again, Paul, thank you for doing this with me. This is a lot of fun to know that I, uh, I have a phone call with you on the calendar and uh, I get to do this. It's a great pleasure. Always a pleasure. Looking forward to next time.